Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast, and we are back after, I guess, a one-week hiatus. You're listening with, not listening with, <laughs> this is your host, Austin Ye, and... Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin? Yeah, I already lost my touch. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Just the one that, break. Yeah. yeah. It's always nice when someone calls you out on, on the, the Facebook group for, for not releasing the podcast, and then I'm like, oh, shit. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, hey, maybe notice. people won't notice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's so funny, man. Um, how's everything going with you? It's good, man. It's good. Uh, we both, I, I think, just been crazy busy. The real estate world, as we know it, is fucking busy as well, right? Like everywhere, deals, mortgages, all, all, all sorts of different things. Um, what's busy with me? I just had uh, the tiny flip close on Monday, so that was a sale. And then the private that I had for my Chesley flip, uh, which is closing today. Um, and like his lawyer was just being super slow and like complicated and whatever. So I ended up just closing in cash. But now we're going to resecure with private in like uh, probably a week. Like I'll just take my time now. Just mm-hmm. kind of refinancing to private. But uh, that's good, man. And then, um, yeah, mortgages and, and coaching is going good as well. We had some strategy sessions with our students and the coaching program. It's interesting. We have a couple of people inquire from the Rise podcast that, Corey did with us like they inquired mm. the coaching side so i end up t- chatting with them there so it's pretty interesting but what's new with you man what's going on there that's awesome man on on my end i'm looking to get a refinance done on a property i wouldn't say it's a refi yeah it is technically a refinance so i bought something with private duplex um, finishing renovation so the renovations are about a week and a half out but i knew that booking appraisals are going to be busy so i decided to book an appraisal now before my renos are done in anticipation yeah. that they kind of line up, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, the private money is going to expire the end of August. The appraisal is coming in on July 15th. But to get that appraisal, it was a pain in the ass, man. So we're working with Day Jardin right now, Credit Union, and they loan based on um, the asset first, followed by the individual second, right? Um, even for duplexes, which um, I, I wasn't aware of. But uh, it's because we're working on their business side right now. Oh, yeah. And uh, yeah, I mean, they they pretty much said, call your own appraiser. We don't do that for you. So I went on Google, um, did my Googles and was calling every single appraiser. And I had four bluntly just say, we're not booking right now. We're yeah. way too backed up. One person said from now until I guess like three or four weeks, I'm doing 35 appraisers. Appraisers. That's crazy. But not appraisers, appraisals. Yeah. 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 It's it's ridiculous, man. Thirty five in three weeks. Like I don't even know how they have time to pump through these things. Yeah, I might have been telling you this morning on the mortgage side. It's not even really the banks that are holding us up. It's the freaking appraisal companies, man. People that come in with like a thirty day closing. It's like, how are we gonna get an appraisal done? Like appraisers want at least like three to four weeks now to like get an appraisal done. So you almost have to order an appraisal before you like really submit the application. It's kind of the the new norm, as you call it, but. Yeah, there's always some form of like a backlog somewhere in the pipeline, right? Like whether it's the banks, the mortgage, anything like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, nowadays you can't like before we could get away with 30 day closing, even yeah. during busy times, it was tough, but you could probably just stretch it. Now yeah. it's it's a risk. It's like 50 50 that you're not going to get the, the appraisal in. And yeah. if it comes in, it might be like I've noticed there's a lot more issues on the appraisal side of things, right? Like sometimes they're asking for more money nowadays. Oh, yeah. and I've heard that multiple times. <laughs> Yeah. Like by three or four different people 
Yeah. Um, and even for myself, like the do like the duplex we're getting appraised is seven hundred dollars plus HST, which is not terrible, but that's not particularly cheap as well. I remember paying four hundred bucks for a duplex appraisal. Yeah, so like three, four hundred for a single family is normal. Four hundred to six hundred for a duplex, and then five hundred to seven hundred for a triplex is normal. I had a client play. I think it was like thirteen or fourteen hundred dollars for an appraiser, because and that was the only appraiser that would pick it up, right? So then we really didn't have an option. It's like, okay, what's our other option? Do we go private? Like that doesn't make sense, right? You yeah. might as well just pay the extra for the appraiser. And then the, the freaking appraiser was still late, man. We paid a premium because <laughs> he was like, I can get it done on time, blah blah blah. And then he was like four days later to like that. It was just ridiculous. But yeah, and it, it's tough, man. It's tough to go back to the clients and explain these things as well, right? Like it's just it's it's out of it's out of a lot of people's hands, right? Like it's just <laughs> something gets backed up in the supply chain and everyone down the supply chain gets screwed. So it is yeah. what it is. In today's episode, we have a treat for you. We have James and Riley. We'll start off with James. James is an Airbnb expert and also has written a book, a co-authored book, Airbnb for Dummies. He also has a course and does consulting for Airbnb people who are looking to break into the Airbnb rental space. He's helped over thousands of students. And like, if you hear some of the numbers on his deals, they're pretty insane. So this guy definitely knows what he's doing. And we have him partnered up with Riley and Riley's a real estate investor himself. He's relatively young in his mid twenties. Um, I've also, Mayu and I personally know Riley via Corey's coaching program. He's also a coach down there. And he's a multifamily investor. Uh, he was able to scale his portfolio via joint ventureships. And Riley and James are doing something pretty neat now. James has the Airbnb expert saw, uh, expertise side. Riley is the um, buy and hold Burr expert. So they partner together to bring to the joint venture partners on um, burring properties, but also Airbnb it for higher cash flow. So pretty unique episode. We get into case studies. We get into their story. It's going to be a fantastic one. Make sure to tune in. Today, we are joined with our very special guests, Riley and James. How are you guys doing today? Doing well, doing well. Thanks for having us on here. Awesome, guys. So, so myself and Austin both know you guys at, at varying levels, but um, why don't you each just give our audience a quick introduction about yourself, um, where you guys got started, um, how things have changed for you over the last couple of years, and uh, what you're doing now. Sure, yeah. So basically, my, my background, and this is Riley, um, my background was in... Um, basically just like a home maintenance company. So I ran a home maintenance company for a few years and then transitioned into doing property management. So I did property management in Southwestern Ontario with, uh, with, uh, Corey McKinnon. So Corey obviously had a portfolio there, has a portfolio in London and Sarnia. So I oversaw all of his portfolio there and did some acquisitions for him as well. And, um, was, was locking up some deals, doing the renovation management. So that was my, my kind of foot in the door experience. And then I've, I've transitioned into buying multifamily properties right now and Airbnbs with joint venture partners. And uh, for myself, uh, this is James, obviously. Uh, so I, I started out managing other people's properties on Airbnb uh, and actually started a short-term rental management company. And then just over the years, kind of got more and more involved with Airbnb and short-term rentals and that whole world. Got to be quite an expert on in the space and then wrote Airbnb for dummies there. And then now, similar to Riley, just working mostly on... Um, uh, I do some coaching and consulting with different people around the short-term rental space and then buying properties. Specifically right now, we're buying properties uh, north of Toronto and kind of cottage country area, buying them for for the purpose of short-term rental. Gotcha. And you guys are business partners now, is that correct? That we are. So how did that marriage come along? Like where does, so one was buying multifamilies, one was doing Airbnbs in Toronto and together you guys found a, a way to, uh, I guess, 
take the synergistic strategies that each one of you guys are using and putting it together in one strategy. So can you tell us a bit about the business or what you're doing in real estate investing together? Yeah, well, so when you take an Airbnb, an Airbnb person and then a, a multifamily real estate investing person and you get them to move into the same house together, then it only takes a couple of months before you guys have your first Airbnb actually purchased. So that's actually what what happened with us is uh, I was living downtown Toronto and Riley was just basically moving into Toronto from London. And so Riley ended up moving in here and then it was just kind of him getting in my ear. I'd, I'd always been thinking about um, actually purchasing the properties for short-term rental. It kind of seemed like a pretty pretty obvious natural progression, but with Riley's expertise, obviously just made that a whole lot easier. And so then we, uh, we started doing that. And now we're basically business partners on a few different levels. So we're buying these properties together ourselves. We're also working with some investing partners to buy par- properties uh, under joint venture structures. And then we're also working with people, basically coaching people on how to actually go through and build a portfolio investing in short-term rental properties. It's interesting because I think generally when you have two people in a room and one does Airbnb and one does multifamily work, they just sit there and like debate about which one's a better approach and like the pros and cons of each approach, right? So I'm sure you guys, when you first met and when you were first talking, you're kind of like head to head about it. It's like, no, Airbnb is definitely the way to go. No, wearing is definitely the way to go. And then you guys realize that if you pair the two strategies together, your returns are are magnified, right? And you guys each have a different uh, area of expertise in that, right? So that's awesome. So I, I'm right. I guess we'll, we'll talk, talk about your journey first. Um, did you jump right into burning, um, burning properties for Airbnb or did you burn like your own properties first? And did you try the long-term rental route? Uh, yeah, like background, I guess my journey would be, like I mentioned in the beginning, I started off with Corey, uh, did his property management, did a few flips with him. And so I had a bit of exposure already with the renovation and the renovation space and, and quite a bit in property management in and of itself. Then for me, it was just like, okay, well, how do I create my own empire? How do I build my own business? And naturally, like two to four units kind of stood to me as like the sweet spot. Um, I, I didn't even think of Airbnb as all, at all. I actually do still uh, envision it as being more of an advanced strategy, to be honest. There's a lot to, to handle. Because if you think of like a long-term rental, you just like, you obviously figure out the, the amount of rent. So maybe it's $1,200 for one bedroom. You set that rent and you forget it and you're done. Uh, whereas like for an Airbnb, it, like you're really in the hospitality business. So you're going to have like 100, 200, maybe even 300 guests in the course of the year. So there's a lot more to kind of manage and all the rates are not the exact same at all. So there's a lot of price optimization to do. It is definitely more of an, an advanced strategy. So when I had started off at the beginning, I wasn't even looking at Airbnb as an option. Mainly it was just um, two to four units. I, I, I do believe that single family properties tend to be a bit more expensive for what they are. Like Grant Cardone says, like for uh, the price per unit is just way too inflated. Like you're not going to get your bang for your buck unless you're going to do a flip student rental or Airbnb. Those are the only ways that I believe that a single family would make sense. And commercial is just too expensive, you know, 35, 40% down depending on the project. I, I just couldn't do that. So I, I did a few duplexes, triplexes, fourplexes, um, partnered up with people that had money, they had mortgages. I did all the heavy lifting, all the active partner work. And we, we co-owned the, the properties 50-50. So I did, um, did a couple of those over the course of two years. And, uh, and then like James mentioned, we, we moved in together and uh, we've just started doing a bunch of Airbnbs. Yeah. So James, um, so then I'm curious on your end, because you were doing the Airbnb side, right? And I'm sure things were going pretty good, right? Why go into acquiring real estate where now you've added layers to your model, right? Why not just keep doing the 
essentially you're doing Airbnb re-rental. There's a name for it, right? But um, you were essentially just re-renting from people and, and renting from people and re-renting it out on Airbnb. Why not just blow up that model? And one more later add to that question, if that question wasn't already complex enough, <laughs> is uh, also um, you're doing it in Toronto. So that I assume that plays the factor because I've always thought Toronto wasn't supposed to be the greatest place to do the re-rental strategy because of all the policies and regulations. Yeah. Yeah. There's really nowhere good to do the re-rental strategy is, is my honest opinion about it. It's a, it's a really crap model and it's actually not the model that I was using. So the, the model that I was using was basically a, a percentage management fee model. So we would manage the properties for the property owners and collect a percentage of the overall revenue as a management fee. The it's called rental arbitrage, that kind of like re-rental strategy. We actually started out doing that. And I did have to, to be fair to the model, like I did have two units that did exceptionally well and made crazy money. Like we were making four thousand dollars a month or so profit on on each one of those units, and that was great. But those are what I call unicorn properties. Like 99% of all properties out there, if you're doing the re-rental strategy, you're you're taking a lot of risk. For very little reward because you have to pay first month's last month's rent security deposit and furnishing expense right up front and so to make that money back it's really challenging so i never really got that far into the model because after i picked up a couple of units i realized wow this is a pretty flawed model so the management fee model on the other hand is a really great model because it's no risk like 20 percent if your management fee is 20 percent of zero if the property does poorly is still just zero. Like you're not losing money. Whereas if you have a bad month with the rental arbitrage model, you're paying thousands of dollars out of your pocket. So that was a really good model and we, and it worked really well. And that's still the model that I, that I teach people when I coach people around the, the short-term rental kind of management side of things. But it honestly is just, it's something that I've always wanted to do to actually own the properties. Like naturally when you manage the properties, it's great because it's so low barrier to entry. Like you don't have to shell out any money. You're more just kind of doing similar to what Riley did when he's doing property management with Corey. It's like, you're putting in the, the work, you're putting in the sweat equity and that's great. But then at a certain point, you know, you've got the money set, it, uh, set aside, you've got it built up and you're thinking, okay, well, what if I could just manage my own property? I could just go and buy it. And then I get to reap the reward of the appreciation on the property every year. I get to reap the reward of, you know, when I, when I'm paying that mortgage, I'm building equity in the property. I don't have another per, another client to manage. I'm just managing myself and I get complete and total autonomy. And a big part of it too, is like, I get a hundred percent of the cash flow for the property because, you know, if we're charging a 20% management fee, that property owner is still profiting quite a bit on, in just cash flow typically. So now we're just managing it ourselves and we get to reap the rewards of all of that. So it makes a lot of sense to invest in. And for me, it's a lot more so like kind of the passive side of my, the way I view kind of my income is I've got my active income that I get from mainly coaching at this point and the, the consulting that I do. And then this is just one of the ways that I like to kind of put my money to work for me. Yeah, I know you, you hit the nail on the head there. Um, you, you want to have multiple income streams. It'd be nice to have an income stream that's relatively passive. And, and that's something that you could do with the, this multifamily investing. I know you got you guys are setting up systems for the Airbnb, but if you ever want to pivot over to long-term rentals, you could just pivot over to a fully furnished rental, right? So that's definitely a great strategy. One thing that I did want to ask is that, so you guys are doing this particularly with multifamily properties. And I assume more in the, I wouldn't call it outskirts, but outside of um, Toronto, outside of GTA, which to some people in the GTA, they consider anything an outskirt. <laughs> That's not downtown Toronto. Um, but how does Airbnb work in those areas? Because a lot of people commonly think that you're not going to be able to find any, I wouldn't say tenants, not tenants, but I guess clients in those areas. 
I thought I thought I thought James or someone early on said that you guys were doing north of Toronto, like the Muskoka area. Is that the area, or what area are you doing primarily now? Yeah, so we're we're mainly looking right now. It's actually single family homes that we're doing with the short term rental strategy. Multifamily doesn't tend to be as good for short term rental just because of the nature of having two different groups in in a in a property with noise things like that. Um, and we're looking at the areas like basically just cottage country. So Kawartha Lakes area, Muskoka area, kind of north and northeast of, of Toronto and really capitalizing on that cottage boom. Like that's that's really what we're geared towards is cottagers. So the properties that we're picking up are, are kind of ideal cottage properties. And so the reality is like 80%, 90% of our revenue is coming in between June and September. Uh, and then the off season, you're just having a lot more seasonality so that's what a lot of people think is they think like it's hard to find guests for out there and it is in the off season, but the, the on season makes up for it because like if you can bring in $70,000, $80,000 on a, on a single family home within a few months of the summertime, then it doesn't really matter that you're only bringing in, you know, three to $5,000 a month, let's say in the, in the off season. So let me ask you this, because I have this, uh, I guess now we're kind of getting off on the tangent here about cottage rentals, but, um, I have this discussion with some people and, um, Basically, right now we're at a point where cottage rentals could be like $3,000 or whatever, like a week or weekend or whatever you want to call it. And if you go back maybe two years, three years, something like 2019, 2018, it was maybe at like 2000 right? Maybe 2300 or something like that for like a weekend or, or so, right? So what's your expectation on cottage rental rates in three years down the road when we're out of this COVID travel lockdown stuff and like people can go international, right? Yeah. Um, are you guys running your numbers on a lower rental rate or are you assuming that rental rates will continue to go higher? And let me add on to that, Mike. That's a great question because actually just to point out something interesting, um, my girlfriend is going to a bachelorette and it's at a cottage because you can't go anywhere else. Right. And even my buddy just came from a, uh, from a cottage, from a bachelor party. So that's where like, obviously rates are inflated because high demand, but yeah, like let's, let's dig into my questions because that was a fantastic question. Sure. Really, in any analysis that you do, whether it's long term, short term, anything, you're going to always run the worst case scenario. And so obviously, we're going to we're going to run the, the worst case scenario here on each of the properties that we're, we're putting into the portfolio. And we're, we're not basing anything off of like, during COVID, like the COVID era, it's all pre COVID, like we're looking at 2018, early 2019, and just seeing what the numbers look like. And we're actually using those in the analysis. And obviously, when we're partnering with people, we're just plain and simply saying, hey, this is abnormal. What we're experiencing right now this year is just going to be crazy but obviously that's awesome at the very beginning of the investment yeah. for them because it's like hey like if we can bring in an extra 40 50 grand this year like that's just like this pure cash injection right into the business from the get-go that helps us to be able to get, get your money back sooner so I, I think that's why we have like a pretty long waiting list right now with people that want to buy airbnbs with us because it is just like a super abnormal season and long term, we're not expecting that to, to be the case in terms of just the amount of income that we can bring in. Like the, the recent uh, property there in the Corthas that we purchased, the, the worst case numbers were like around 50,000 for the single family. Um, that's like worst case, like basing it off of like 2018, 2019 numbers. And if we were to do that, like we're, we're pretty much breaking neutral, like we're just breaking even, maybe making like two, $300 a month in cash flow. And, and we were happy with that. Like if, if, you know, worst case scenario, if that were to happen, we're fine with that. We're, we're comfortable with it. So I, I'd recommend to anyone listening, like if you're going to buy a short-term rental, run it off of the pre-COVID numbers and ensure that you are actually going to be satisfied if the worst case scenario were to happen, that the property is still, um, you know, not a donkey in your portfolio. Like it still performs well and you're still happy with that. Yeah. 
Or, or on that note as well, if you're in a market where COVID caused a downturn, because obviously we were investing in a market where COVID caused a huge uptick in revenues because everyone was getting away to these cottages, but a lot of other markets, you saw the exact opposite. So a lot of the kind of urban centers during COVID, they, their revenue kind of nosedived. And similar to what Raz is saying, you kind of want to use that same strategy. If you're in one of those markets and you're looking to buy a short-term rental there, make sure you run numbers that are based off of COVID that are the worst case scenario so that you know what to expect in a worst case scenario and you're, and you can make sure you're comfortable with that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's, that's awesome. Pandemic planning, (laughs) risk mitigation on pandemics. That's, that's amazing. And uh, one thing I did want to ask is, is that, um, so you guys are getting properties down at obviously Northern Ontario cottage, cottage uh, areas. How are you sourcing these deals? Are they on market? Are you trying to find them off market? Yeah. So we're doing a bit of both. We, We do. I have some flyer campaigns happening and some off-market kind of lead generation methods that we're using to find off-market properties. And at the same time, like there's still some hidden gems on the market. The the one property that we had we had purchased there a few months ago was on the market for over 60 days. And because of that, it was just kind of this this sitting duck. Like it was just this kind of a hidden gem to to be to be um accurate. But it, yeah, it was just like all lonesome by itself. No one had placed an offer on it for like two and a half months. And so we came in and we were able to negotiate down like a, a really healthy rate. So there are still great deals on the market in certain like rural cottage areas. Like I wouldn't say that Muskoka's would be necessarily a great place to go right now if you something on the market. But uh, if we're if we're looking at like the, the courses, like there still are a few properties on the market that that makes sense. Gotcha. And what makes a desirable property? Because I'm assuming that just this is just based off of assumptions. It's, it has to be close by a lake or waterfront is one of them. Is there anything else that um, you look for for cottage Airbnb? Yeah, like like you mentioned, kind of lake access, lakefront. Ideally, kind of lake access because when you're on the lakefront, you're paying a premium for sure. And uh, and then the other the other thing right now that we're looking at is like four to six bedrooms because we want to be able to at least bring in like a larger group of people. You know, when we can we we can access a pool of 10, 15 guests, that's much healthier than if we can only solicit our market to like groups of one or two. So four to six bedrooms are, are kind of our that's our ideal. And then within like two to two and a half hours from like the urban center of Toronto, you know, we don't want to be too far away that people aren't willing to make a three, four hour drive, but two, two and a half hours would be kind of our max end. Then like, honestly, just a distressed property, because we do want to be able to do the bird to it. So we're, we're looking at properties that, you know, they need some TLC, not a full gut job by any means, but we can add in like an extra bedroom or two. Um, we just bought a property. It was, it, it's a three bed, two bath, and it's on a hundred acres of land. Then they actually also had this very tall garage. <laughs> the previous owner was like an avid hunter. And so he actually built this like 20 foot garage. Um, it was 20 feet high. It's probably about 10, 15 feet in depth. So we're looking for like really good value adds like that, because the cool thing is he used to just hang his kill or whatever, like the deer that he'd, he'd kill in the garage. Right. And that's why it's so high mm-hmm. for us. We're looking at it and we're like, well, that's easily going to be an Airbnb. That's just a tiny house, like, you know, yeah. in the tiny house movement, we can, we can have two great lofts up there and we can have like a kitchenette and a bathroom on the main floor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, that, that in and of itself probably has 30 to 50 grand worth of value to us that it didn't have to maybe someone else that wanted to buy the property and didn't want to hunt and hang their kill in the garage. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that, that, those are the other kind of amenities that we're looking for around the property. Awesome. And what are you trying to avoid with the property? Cause I know that with cottages, there's a lot that. There's a lot of things that you might want to avoid. So like if you want to bring like six or seven or eight guests, you might need a big enough holding tank. Uh, I don't know. The water supply in these cottage areas could be hit or miss, right? It could be from the lake. It could be like 
a drilled well that's not maintained well and so on and so forth. Are there any particular things that you guys see in cottages that you say, no way, we don't want to buy it because this might lead to problems now or in the future? Yeah, I think the, the biggest one for us is neighbors. Neighbors are something that we're, we're trying to avoid given that we are looking at larger units that are accommodating like groups of 10, 12 people. Even if you know everyone has the kind of fear in their head that I think is largely unjustified of like having partiers at your Airbnb, that's something you can really easily avoid. But what you can't easily avoid is when 10 friends get together for the first time in like a year, they're gonna they're gonna make noise. Like they're and if they're on vacation on a Tuesday night, it doesn't mean that your neighbors are on vacation on that particular Tuesday night. So for us, like the, that's one of the reasons that the, the property that Riley just mentioned we bought is on 100 acres is, you know, just no neighbors around. So that's mm. a really big advantage there. Um, just because we don't really want to, we don't want to deal with that additional headache and we don't want to be putting the neighbors out. So if the guests are just free to make some additional noise, not like they're going to be throwing a big party, but if they're just free to like be out around the campfire at midnight on a Tuesday, then that's a really great bonus for us. But like a lot of the other stuff, like we're we're obviously in the in in our inspection or when we're having an inspection done, we're looking at all things like the water supply. We, you know, the the first property we got there in in Kortha Lakes, we ended up redoing the septic on it because it wasn't big enough to support the number of guests we were looking to accommodate. But that's a great way to add value to the property. We were able to negotiate down the price based on that needing to be done. So like most of the actual property specific things, the nice thing is like they're fixable. There's something you can do about them. There's a few things that you can't do anything about and neighbors are one of them. You're not going to be able to you know, buy out your neighbors anytime soon or just remove them entirely. So there's a few things that we look for to make sure that they're just, they're just kind of no fly because there's not really much we can do about them. I don't think you know what you're doing in the cottage community. I feel like I was reading, I think it was like one of those like blog TO, like Toronto Life, like just like random stupid articles. Um, and, and it was about like this horror story where someone had purchased a property and the uh, water well system, like just like what, like the water was contaminated or there was some like issues with the well and like not pumping out water. And I, like I, I, I had my cottage where it was on a well and like I knew nothing about wells. So it's just like, I, I, you, you don't know what you don't know, especially coming from the big city. It's like, septic like tanks like well systems like water filtration systems like we're like why is it why is the water in the toilet like yellow like that's not how it's supposed to be that that literally happened when i bought it what the fuck is this but um so so the main question i have so, so you guys were you guys are buying properties with partners joint, joint venture model um so the real estate joint venture model is there and typically in the normal real estate jv model you're essentially putting in uh 20% of the capital for the down payment and then you're funding the renovations as an active uh, sorry as a capital partner right uh, how does financing change from that perspective or how does the capital required, maybe is a better question, how does the capital required change from that um, normal real estate model to if you're doing cottages? So is it higher down payment, lower down payment? Um, and then going into also on that, are your renovations typically higher because this is now cottage country, Northern Ontario, hard to find good contractors and so on? So, so to answer your, the, the down payment question, uh, we do 20% down and uh, and in terms of the renovation, so with the renovation, there, there are going to be different expenses that you wouldn't necessarily have with like more of a long-term rental. Um, if you're not going to do like, if we're going to be doing the furnishings, we're going to have to pay for the furnishings, obviously. So that's going to be something that won't actually add equity to the property. So when we're doing the refinance, you can't really pull that money out. So if we're spending 10 grand on furnishing a six bedroom, then naturally that's just going to be money that's left in the property. And so that that's the one thing. And then as well, like amenities, we like to buy hot tubs and saunas to make the Airbnbs like a four season. So, you know, hey, that's going to be an extra five grand for a hot tub, five grand for a sauna. That's 10 grand that doesn't 
doesn't add value necessarily to the property's value. So that that's something to keep in mind with the renovation for sure when you're looking at a short-term rental. Um, yeah, like where where it is a bit more rural, it can be challenging. Not going to lie, um, especially right now, like everyone wants to do a renovation to the property because they're just at home, and and so naturally to find really good help is tough. I, I tend to not look on Google search. I'm just all over Kijiji, Facebook Marketplace. And what I'll do is I'll actually kind of network with these people and ask them, like, once I find one good person, once I find that one good painter or one good electrician, I'm asking them for sure, like, who do you know that does this? I'm looking for a carpenter. I'm looking for a tile specialist. I'm trying to find the people that you can actually have access to. Like the, the, the majority of the public would not be able to find these individuals because yeah. they're not listed on Kijiji. They're, they're not online at all, actually. And th- these great contractors are the ones that are the hidden gems that, um, you know, just don't have anything on- online. So you want to find them through, through kind of your network there. And that just comes from doing a lot of phone calls. Like anyone can do that. It's just a matter of making a lot of phone calls, networking, talking to a lot of people. And, and you finally do find those, those really great people. And once you find them, like we just found a, an excellent handyman that will be our maintenance guy on all the Airbnbs. And we just put him on, uh, on our payroll uh, for 40 hours a week. Like he's just fully employed with us now because we're not letting him go. You know, yeah. once you find a really good person, it's important to, to do that. So true. Competent contractors, I think in Northern Ontario, it's a little bit, it's a little bit difficult to find them. And the ones that are like really good charge an arm and a leg, like yep. they've kind of got like a monopoly on like one or two like small areas. Right. Yeah. That's what like any small area. I was getting a renovation done on one of my properties and they quoted me like double what, uh, double the cost uh, for a furnace of what I would get in a major city center. I was like, what the hell? They're like, yeah, you know what? You're better off just bringing someone from Toronto over. I was like, yeah, but no one's going to want to go over. <laughs> that's exactly what I had to do, man. I, yeah. I had my tiny Ontario cottage book going on. I gave it to the cheapest guys. And I was like, like it was a huge range. It was like one guy was at like 20 grand for labor and one guy was at like 80 grand. All right. I'm going to take my gamble <laughs> on this guy at 20 grand. Cause like, let's give it a shot. Let's see what happens. Right. And then of course, like, super slow super super slow right it was like three four weeks in and the guy's still working on like cleaning up the basement i was like two guys there with him that just like sit around like what are you what are you guys doing like i don't get it and then i just <laughs> got it down called, like yeah. my like like the gta i was like this is i don't know so so kudos to you guys for finding these guys and um and riley i think you were actually like living there for a bit right if i'm not mistaken just like um making sure the renovations happen like or at least you were there a lot um, just making sure that the renovations happen like on time, which um, as an active partner is, is you know, it makes sense. It's what, kind of what's required to make these Northern projects move forward, right? Okay, awesome, guys. And uh, seems like you have a really great strategy going on here. One thing I'm always curious about is the numbers, right? The numbers of a particular strategy. And let's go through some real life numbers and the benchmark that you guys initially calculated, because I know that you like to do things on worst case scenario. I want to hear the worst case scenario numbers and what it actually panned out to. So if you can think of a project that you guys did recently or are going through, um, let's let's dive into that. Um, so do you have something in mind? We can talk about a project that we uh, that we just did. We'll call it Sumcot. That's the one of the projects that we just did. And that one will be a, kind of a good case study to go through. Awesome. Okay. So where? how much did you pick this property up for and how did you acquire this property? Was it on the market or off the market? Yeah, so Riley, Riley was kind of the mastermind behind this one, behind actually the acquisition process. So Riley, I'll let you take that. Sure. Yeah, it was all, uh, on the market, so it was on the MLS. Uh, we, we had noticed that the property was actually listed for six hundred and seventy thousand, and they dropped it to six twenty. And then the the list date was like uh, this was the one that was on the market for over sixty days. 
And so as soon as we noticed that, and then the price drop came down 50K, we wanted to jump on top of it. And the property was pretty distressed. It had spray painted carpet blue, um, like cleaning the carpets, like they just decided to spray paint them. And, <laughs> and like the place just stunk, like it was, it was pretty gross. He'd smoked in there for 30, 40 years. So, so a pretty gross property. And then the backyard as well, just had like a bunch of like junk in the backyard. James was out there, like just shoveling out, like it was like a, a dump site basically. So we actually loaded up like two trailer full full of like just junk that he had unloaded in the backyard. We ended up negotiating to, uh, so it was listed at 620 and then we negotiated it down to five, 520. Um, Holy shit. Yeah. yeah, So we, we got it down to 550 and then, um, that extra 30 grand was actually the septic being installed. So we, we actually had a septic inspection done. So this is something like a quick tip for anyone that wants to buy in like a rural area, like cottage country, especially get a septic inspection hands down for sure. You know, and if it's a well as well, like if you have a well in the property, maybe not a drilled well, but just like an old fashioned open concept well, get the water tested too. Go to go to the township there, just have the water tested, make sure that there, there's no issues with it. And that's something again, like Ma, you you mentioned, like we we don't usually have to deal with that sort of thing when you when you buy properties in an urban center. So the septic was bad, so we just basically negotiated back and discounted it thirty grand off because naturally the septic was going to be thirty grand. Um, yeah, so we bought it for five twenty. And then uh, the renovation cost was actually was around fifty five or sixty thousand. Uh, the furnishings another ten fifteen thousand. So we we're in it for around call it seventy thousand between the the renovation and the furnishings. And then the, the air including the septic tank. Actually, the the mortgage broker was able to help us out there and have the banks give us a kickback. So they financed an extra twelve thousand. So we didn't actually have to pay for for the uh, for the septic there. That just got tacked on right to the mortgage. Yeah. Nice. We were in it for seventy thousand, and then the ARV right now is um, twenty around like seven twenty-five. We should be able to refinance it with the, the down payment and the majority of the renovation cost, not the furnishings or the amenities, but at least the renovation cost. Awesome. And what does the? Uh, I guess how long have you been operating this uh, Airbnb for? Has it been fully functional now or not yet? Yeah. So so this one's fully functional. We we've had it live for coming up on four weeks now that we've had it live and we've got the calendar open through for the next six months here. Mm -hmm. Um, so this was, this is one where we were kind of projecting like based on, um, we like to run a real worst case scenario on the, on these properties. So like if we were to look at, this is a six bedroom property and we ran the numbers on a four bedroom property in 2018, 2019 and use those as our kind of baseline for, Hey, what's the worst case scenario. And based on that, our worst case scenario was about $50,000 gross over the course of the year which would give us enough margin after everything to still be breaking even all our, our mortgage payment, our expenses, carrying costs, everything. And so that's, that was reassuring as kind of our worst case scenario. And we figured that the property would do probably close to 70 or maybe $80,000 over the year. And we've surprised even ourselves with it, honestly. Like, so we listed it and within about, um, I think it was 72 hours before we got to 50 K. So we had like, the entire summer almost booked up within the first week. We're now setting at about $75,000 in bookings between now and the middle of September. So that's basically from June until the middle of September, there's about $75,000 in, in total bookings. So we're expecting now that the property should be bringing in north of $100,000 gross for the year. And I think a lot of that is due to COVID. Like we're able to, just because there's such a shortage, like some weekends, we're literally charging $1,300 a night for, for people to stay there. 
And I think that a big part of it is just that there's a huge amount of demand because COVID people want to get out and there's a, just not a lot of supply. Um, what does that net out to in terms of net profit? It'll, it'll net to about $40,000 in cash flow on the property nice. for the year. $40,000 yeah. in cash flow, which is a lot of people's full-time yeah. income, plus a pretty decent burr going on there. Can you tell me a bit of details about the actual property, bedrooms, bathrooms, and what did, like it surprised you, right? What do you think made people want to book it up really quickly? Yeah. So it's a, it's a six bedroom, two bathroom. We ended up, so this is a, a property that did really well just because it was not super desirable to, um, to like the typical cottage buyer needing a bunch of renovation work. Part of that was that we added three bedrooms in the basement. We finished them off. And then one of the big things that I always tell people, and this is a tip for anyone that's uh, looking to invest in any short-term rental, no matter where it is, is just really put yourself in the in the shoes of the guest and ask yourself like what are the amenities that that guest wants what are they looking for what are their criteria when they're buying a property and so for us we know that the people that are going up there to cottage country are a lot of them torontonians who are bored as heck they just don't have anything to do lately cuz toronto lately is just a suburb with really great takeout it's not like the the really fun place that it, that it normally is so we just wanted to load the place up with activities. And so some of those things were bigger investments, like you know paying for the hot tub, paying for the sauna. And some of them were just a couple hundred dollars that I think made a really big difference. Like we spent $600 on getting a projector and a, and a home theater system so that we can then have a little movie theater in the basement. And there's a great little area for it. So there's this great big, huge projection screen. You can watch movies down there. We also just put, you know, a few hundred dollars into some board games, some yard games like cornhole, spike ball, that sort of stuff. Put a ping pong table in the garage, got some bikes, you know, a couple of kayaks, like all that stuff. You know, if you if you add it all up for all those different activity pieces, it's maybe a couple thousand dollars. And, you know, when you factor that and if you look at it, a fifty, sixty thousand dollar renovation, it's a pretty small drop in the in the bucket. But those are the things that are going to make the property really perform well. Mm. The color of paint on the wall or the decor, it's like that's great and it's necessary, but that's not what's going to get someone to go and go. I need to book this place. I'm going to convince all my friends to, to pitch in and for us to book this place. It's the, you know, hey, we're not going to be bored for an entire five days. And that's like unheard of right now. So I think that was a, a big contributing factor. That's interesting. So in the Airbnb Burr model, like I guess, yeah, it's two combined. You might not get the money back on the refi, but you get the money back on the cash flow. That's the difference, right? So that, that's, that's awesome. Basically, you could have a 40K net investment and your payback period is still less than a year, right? So, I mean, yeah. who really cares if you're getting your money back within a year, then you're perfectly fine anyway, right? Whichever way you mm-hmm. look at it. Um, yeah, before, before we wrap up the podcast, um, I, I just had one major question, which is, I guess when we're talking about the types of properties that you can buy, um, how do you guys feel about island cottages and three season cottages? Yeah, um, not, not very friendly to them. Uh, islands are, are hard for people to get to, whether that's maintenance people or your guests. And one thing is like, one thing that I've learned being an Airbnb for as long as I have is that if there's something that's unclear and not incredibly obvious, then at least one guest will have a hard time with it. Like you have to really lay out clear instructions with your Airbnb because guests are on vacation. They don't want to think like they don't want to have to figure things out. So having that one extra layer of complication with an island, for example, is not great. Three season cottages can be really great if we can basically burr them by turning them into a four season. We've looked at that on a couple of projects and that can be great because you can That's add to the property by doing that. But if it's going to stay three season, then you're just, you're missing out on a, on a lot of potential. 
What's required to make a three season into a four? Now, now I'm just having for personal reference. <laughs> I think it's heat, right? For most yeah, properties. Usually, usually it's insulation. You can yeah. spray foam like the, uh-huh. the rafters in the basement, um, put, put insulation there, like in between the walls. Like usually you're, you're working with spray foam unless you're going to rip out like all the drywall and whatnot. But, uh, that's really You've also got to heat the water line. You've got to make sure the water line's the water, heated. There's yeah. a few different pieces. Like some properties will be a, a three season property that have some of these things done and other have none of it done. So you just kind of, it, it does depend per property. No, obviously the finance and complexity is, is going to be another pain in the ass to do with three seasons. Yeah. Yeah. True. All right, guys. So I think that was a great episode. Anyone, I, I think personally from a joint, joint venture model, I always tell people like, JVs make a lot of sense when you can learn from really good people. So on this side, you've got Riley, who I, I know quite well from the Corey side and the coaching side. And James, you're kind of the Airbnb master on this. So um, I think it makes a lot of sense to a venture model that you guys are offering to people. And honestly, Airbnbs and cottages, it's quite a bit of work. So um, personally, I think the JV model for that makes a lot of sense. You guys have to probably take that off people's plates. So uh, now as we wrap up today's call, uh, or today's, wow, not call, <laughs> podcast, uh, we like a coaching like to, session, eh? <laughs> <laughs> we generally like to ask our guests three three main questions, right? Um, where will we be seeing you guys five years from now? What's your goals? What are you trying to get to in five years? Sure. Um, myself, where would I be in five years? Uh, it's tough, man. It's really tough to tell. Five years ago, I could have never imagined I'm doing what I'm doing right now. So it, it's always one of those, those strange questions because we don't really know. If I had to predict... Um, I'd love to, uh, make the transition in my kind of thirties cause I'm 25 right now. So say when I, when I turn 30 into, um, like owning a renewable energy business or just at least being a venture, uh, venture capitalist that kind of buys into and owns, uh, owns pieces of like different renewable energy businesses, whether it's geothermal, solar, that sort of thing. Uh, so that's what I'm doing for work. And then I, I think I'd be living. Um, I, I'd love to live in Halifax. That's where I was, where I was born there is, is in Nova Scotia and, uh, and kind of live there in the summer months and then own a property here in Toronto and, uh, maybe, a, maybe a beach home too. You never know, but, uh, yeah, that would be myself in five years. For, for me in five years, I think the one thing that's always a constant for me is coaching. I've done it for a while now and just really enjoy it. Like, I think I was lucky to, to have found pretty early on what I really, really love doing. Um, so whether it's coaching people around Airbnb investing, Airbnb management, I think that's going to be probably a, a part of my, my future for sure, uh, for quite a while for the foreseeable future, at least, but coaching is something that I know will, will kind of stay as a constant. And yeah, I think just kind of growing the portfolio. I think it's really fun. I really enjoy partnering up with cool, like-minded people and working on fun projects like these Airbnbs and different tiny home projects are working on. So like that. So I, I definitely think I'll be doing a lot more of that. And then just traveling. I think that's kind of why I got into Airbnb in the first place is just, I you know love traveling, love to go and see the world. And so I'm super excited for things to open back up. I've already got trips planned here coming up. I'm going to be over the next year, I'll, I'll be outside of Canada for a lot of the time. Living the life. I love it. I love it. Most people are just like, I want to achieve this, this, this. James is like, fuck it. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> awesome. Cool. And the second question here is, is um, if you guys won $10 million, I guess, each. <laughs> so that's 20 million. If you want $10 million each, how would you spend it? And you only have seven days to spend it. Um, can't all be in real estate investing. So you got to spend it on some personal things too. Yeah, I, I think I I'd definitely retire my parents first and foremost, to be honest. Um, they, they wouldn't have to work again. And, and the majority of my family wouldn't have to work again. Um, if I just want it, I would, I would certainly um, retire a lot of people that I, that I know that if they want to retire, of course, and not work again. 
And then, yeah, I'd, I'd probably spend call it like 5 million on people I know. And then 5 million in real estate and uh, $5 million investment in real estate is obviously that would help me um, quite a bit too. So not sure where exactly I'd spend it in real estate, maybe like more apartment buildings, you know, like 10 plus unit buildings. But uh, that's what I would do with that. Doesn't matter at that point, yourself, 5 James? million. <laughs> I think for me, if I, if I can't put it all into real estate and I, and I don't want to give the, the kind of lame answer saying that I take all the money I can't put into real estate and put it into an index fund. Um, like, I don't know. I, the, the truth, the truthful answer to that is that like the prospect of, of spending $10 million in or allocating, even if you want to call it that $10 million in seven days is just a crazy prospect to me. I think the, I think that where I've really gotten ahead in life is, is, you know, when I, when I learned to start being much more intentional about where I allocate my money to, um, and also where I allocate my time to. So if I had to do it in seven days and I couldn't invest it all, I, I would probably just give it away. Like if I couldn't just invest it, I, I wouldn't, um, I've been living out of a backpack for the last like five years because I'm trying, I've just been training myself to not keep buying more stuff. Cause I found that the more stuff I would buy, the less happy I would get. And so I find that like, I think if I, if I actually tried to go and spend millions of dollars on stuff, I would just end up less happy than I am right now. So I'd probably just give it away. Awesome. Wow. That's a really good answer, man. So, so our last question is if, if you guys could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose and why? I think I'd, I'd for sure go to dinner with Elon Musk. I know it's probably a typical answer here on the show. But uh, yeah, I don't know, man. I just want to understand how we're going to get to Mars. Like, that, that's, uh, I'm like dedicated to having Martian babies, you know? I'd love to have some Martians <laughs> hanging around. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Where are they taking people I to like, sign, sign up, up for it or you know, whatever? But I feel like oh, I would. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. But no, I, I, I'd for sure um, love to just go for dinner with Elon Musk. I think if, if I had to, if I had to pick a person in the world right now, it would be him. He's just been, I don't know, the most innovative person I know. And I've, I've read his, his bio there, his, his book. And yeah, he's a pretty inspiring individual. So for me, I, I think I'm going to, I'm going to kind of game your question a bit. Um, and I'm just going to assume that this is acceptable. Um, I heard one thing, Matthew McConaughey, I think it was, it said at, at one of his speeches, which he was the person he's always chasing is himself in, in five years um, and himself in, in 10 years. And that's who he looks up to. And I think that really resonated with me. So if I could sit down and, and have dinner with myself in five years or myself in 10 years and just kind of see where I've ended up and learn some of that wisdom, I think just thinking back to if I could sit down right now and talk to myself from five years ago, I think I would be able to make a lot less mistakes and, and learn some really cool insights that would make me a lot happier and more fulfilled. And you know, I think that, that would be kind of my ideal answer to that question. There's not really a lot of people that I think are, I think there's a lot of really impressive people out there, but they're all just human. So I think, um, yeah, sitting down with myself five years from now would be pretty cool. Awesome. Awesome. Really appreciate you guys jumping on today's podcast. You have both been a wealth of knowledge and actually a very interesting business model, but it makes a lot of sense. And it seems like you guys are absolutely crushing it. Can't wait to continue to see what you guys do in the future. In the meantime, if people want to hit you up, either for coaching, consultation, or want to JV or partner with you, or just ask questions, what's the best way to do so? Probably the best way to find us is just going to, uh, you can go to bnbinnercircle.com. There's more stuff there and you can book a call with us through the website there. Um, so just bnbinnercircle.com um, or just find either one of us on Instagram, hit us up, Facebook, hit us up. Yeah, we're, we're always happy to chat. Awesome. Awesome, guys. Um, yeah. 
uh, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, do whatever you can to support this podcast because it helps bring great guests like Riley and James out here. Again, it was a pleasure to have you both on. And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better.